that's why we're here today, to work and to fight so that all little girls inherit the world that they deserve. There's so many expectations that any actor of society needs to do its part to combat climate change. We are treating diseases, we are treating illnesses, but we could prevent those diseases by having clean cooking solutions. Hello, it is again, the lid is on from COP26. Hello, Lara. Hello. How are you today? I'm great, actually. Are you great? Why are you great? Because it was a sunny day. There were less people around. <laughs> Slightly. It was a little bit busy in the corridor. We had a few stars around today. We'll oh, yeah. come to that a bit later. I'm happy because I survived eating haggis dumplings last oh, night. Oh, yes. You sent me that picture. It's a true thing. Go to the dim sum place if you want to try it. That will uh, that will ease you in softly to your ultimate challenge, which is, of course, the deep fried Mars bar with ice cream, which you're going to have to have. I saw it yesterday. Scotland. And I was this close to buy it. And then I was like, no, I want to keep my heart for it's another day. We'll make it a team event. How's that? <laughs> Today was a threefer, wasn't it? Gender, science and innovation. We saw little Amal, who's not little. She's the giant puppet. And we're going to be telling you how Glasgow is leading the world in dance-related energy. A surprise really? for you. Really? Whoa. Yeah. We'll find more about that later. But let's start off with the main topic of the day, Lara which was, of course, gender. And little Amal, the giant puppet, 11.5 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Three and a half metres. Three and a half metres, for those who don't do imperial. (laughs) And she was with Brianna Fruin. So you were at that plenary. Yes. What was your impression? I was startled, like everyone else. We we were sitting, you know... People were very quiet. There wasn't cheering. People were like, what is going on? Exactly. Like, you were expecting, you know, we were expecting Brianna to to make her speech. And then this huge thing starts walking up the stairs and... And I think even some of the panelists, you know, there were like international uh, activists and politicians, they were also like, they couldn't stop looking at it. And and the story is just incredible because she's, she's walked, oh, I mean, the person who's inside her. Well, there are, has, yeah, there are plenty of people. There's a team of puppeteers around her. Yeah, there? it's like 8,000 miles. And they yes. went from the Syrian border all the way to Manchester. It was called The Walk. Yes. Both of us have embarked here on a journey. We have arrived here at COP from two very different places, but we are connected by the fact that we are living in a broken world that has systemically marginalized women and girls, especially women and girls from vulnerable communities. While discussing the system and change here at COP, we must remember that gender differentiated impacts of the climate crisis Remember the fact that it is our women and girls that feel the brunt of this climate emergency that further amplifies the already existing societal inequalities. But that's why we're here today, well, why we're supposed to be here today, to work and to fight so that all little girls inherit the world that they deserve to lay the foundation for change to grow. That was young Samoan climate activist, Brianna Fruin. Little Amal is, she's, an, she's a representation of a Syrian refugee girl, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Yes, so she came and exchanged gifts with Brianna. So Brianna gave her a flower 
and the flower uh, represented hope from Samoa. You know, Brianna is from Samoa, so she has one of these Pacific flowers. And uh, little Amal gave her a bag of seeds. She said that COP26 delegates should be planting these seeds and that seeds were a representation of hope because when you plant a seed, you don't know if you're going to get to eat the fruit or, or to see the tree of that seed but it might be just for somebody in the future. So she made this beautiful metaphor about it. And uh, it actually means for leaders that they have to start planting the seeds for the future. Particularly given the other big news that we had about the climate action tracker that came out today, the world's most respected climate analysis coalition. Pretty scary news. They announced that temperatures, given the the national determined contributions, the so-called NDCs that countries have already released, even if they hit those targets, temperature rises are going to top out at 2.4 degrees Celsius, which would be disastrous. Which uh, UNEP as well, they published today their uh, emission gap, gap report um, adapted to the latest pledges. And initially they said that we'll reach a 7.8% less emissions by 2030. And um, that now we're going to reach, after all the pledges from last week and commitments, an 8% reduction. So it's really only a 0.2 difference. It really underscores the amount of hard work that still needs to be done this week if we're to get anywhere near uh, some kind of, of acceptable resolution by the end. Yeah, Inger Anderson, the, the head of UNEP, called it like an elephant giving birth to a mouse. <laughs> right, exactly. So again, not impressive at all. So yeah, we'll of course be keeping an eye on that. We're going to be here right to the end of uh, these negotiations, which looks like they could still be quite fraught. So back to today's main theme, gender. Last week, the head of Sustainable Energy for All, Damilola Ogumbi, told me about the links between gender and energy, particularly clean cooking. So today I went back to the Sustainable Energy for All pavilion, where Samira Baumia, a global champion of the Clean Cooking Alliance from Ghana, told me that clean cooking has a big impact on areas ranging from education to healthcare. There's a direct linkage between clean cooking and education. We, we don't want a situation where a, a girl child who has to go to school, for instance, is spending hours in the kitchen slaving over food um, where she could have a more efficient and cleaner uh, way of cooking because we know that the impact of cooking directly affects uh, women or girls. So it, there's a direct impact on girls. So inefficient cooking has an impact on education. Um, the girl goes out fetching firewood. It's time spent instead of studying. She's out there looking for firewood in certain rural communities. So the way we cook, um, the way we find energy for cooking, it all directly impacts education for girls. Healthcare, for instance. I mean, we spend so much money treating women, looking for um, a free maternal care for women, a free, a free uh, care for children and all of that. We are treating diseases, we are treating illnesses, but we could prevent those diseases. We could prevent um, indoor uh, air pollution by having clean cooking solutions. So the impact on healthcare. So there's a lot of issues that could be resolved just in one fell swoop by dealing with clean cooking. These issues overlap and if we're investing in healthcare, we're investing in education, it's energy issues and it comes directly back to clean cooking. Another factor is men. 
Oh, absolutely. What can they do? <laughs> what should they be doing? Men should support women. Men are at the decision-making table. Um, so, first of all, let's encourage women. Let's build capacity. But most importantly, the men who are sitting at the decision-making table should be sensitive to the issues that are affecting women and should make sure that the decisions that are being made are sensitive to women. But let's build the capacity of women. Let's put women in the places where they make decisions for themselves. Who better to speak for a woman than a woman who is experiencing those issues and can help bring the solutions to the problems. Samira Baumia, a global champion of the Clean Cooking Alliance. Now, turning to science, the whole credibility of these conferences is underpinned by scientific reports on the impact of climate change, particularly the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is part of the UN. Now, explaining in simple terms what they do, that's kind of our job, really, isn't it? Or we try to. Yeah, it's a big, tough job. I wanted to find out more about some of the challenges that the IPCC have in getting the word out, getting it out accurately. So I thought I'd have a chat with Jonathan Lynn. He's the head of communications for the IPCC. And he told me that over the years, they've learned to bring the scientists into the communication process from the beginning, rather than try to translate from science to plain language later on. And what I learned, Lara, was that for many people, some of the language that I thought, that maybe that we thought was plain, turns out it isn't. There's a, a, a journal called Climatic Change, one of the academic journals on climate change, which came out with a whole issue devoted to IPCC communications to coincide with a COP. And one of the papers in that looked at some of the terminology that is used in the IPCC. These were terms identified by our co-chairs, the people leading the work on each report, as ones they particularly wanted to make sure would, would be understood and accessible. They looked at some terms, including adaptation, which again is a fundamental term in climate change, adaptation, and they, when they talked to non-specialists, most people thought that adaptation was not about adjusting to climate change, it's about turning a book into a movie. Right. <laughs> right. So, and another one, uh, sustainable development. Yeah, well, that must be to do with real estate. Deve development is real estate, and maybe it's got some nice environmental features too. Uh, well, so this is all very useful, yes, because these are, as you say, these are terms that we, we use yeah. all the time, every day, and it's something that we have to work on every day, isn't it? Making yeah. sure that what we're saying is clear and understandable to people outside of our little UN bubble. It's then very easy for people who don't understand the, 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 or who, who know that people don't understand this terminology then to play on it um, maliciously. And, right, uh, and this has been a big problem for you, hasn't it? Because over the years, people have tried to denigrate the IPCC to say that you're biased in some way, often for political ends. In general, that problem has reduced dramatically over the 10 years that I've been working on this. So that has really gone away. Although, because it's become now of such interest and everyone is talking about it, it's beginning to creep back a bit. Some people are sort of trying it on a bit. Have you enjoyed your time or have you found it uh, scary? Depressing? <laughs> and the material is scary, let's face it. But what we've found is I say, ever-growing interest in our, in our work and in, in, in climate change in general. We've reached a tipping point. People really get it now, and I think I think so. That gives me a lot of optimism that the the message is out there. And people want to do something about it, 
and the, sci the scientific community with us, we can help. We can help them do do that thing. We can we can still turn it round. We don't have much time. It takes a big effort, but it can be done. That's what the science shows. Jonathan Lynn, head of communications at the IPCC, on the challenges of explaining scientific reports to the public. Some good tips there from Jonathan, Great. which we will keep in mind <laughs> as we go forward and in the days to come. Now, follow the science. That's something we've been hearing a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic, a mantra the UN and partners have been trying to introduce into the business world since the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. The science-based targets initiative, which was set up by the UN Global Compact, companies that sign up to this initiative have to reduce by half their emissions by 2030 and commit to reducing by 90% by 2050 at the latest. I met Lila Kabasi, the head of the initiative, a little earlier. I asked her why the CEO of a big company whose job is to get the share price up and make money would want to sign up to such stringent targets. There's so many expectations that any actor of society needs to do its part to combat climate change. There are expectations that investors are going to invest in companies that have a credible uh, halfway to stay within 1.5 degree um, and therefore those companies that commit today will have an advantage already have an advantage on the market they will be rewarded there's policy uh, coming from governments that will incentivize all uh, plans that are decarbonizing uh, companies operations so uh, any CEO today uh, that reads the sign knows that they're going to be rewarded by governments, they're going to be rewarded by investors, they're going to be rewarded by their consumers, uh, by the market. So governments accept your targets. This is like a gold standard that they want companies to sign up to, is that right? De facto, science-based target has become the gold standard uh, because it's uh, the alliance between the UN Global Compact, the WWF, CDP, WRI, and we work with a women business coalition as well. Um, and all these organizations have put together the right experts and worked over two years to define a standard for net zero. And de facto, this has become the only uh, and the gold standard for uh, net zero commitments by business. There's been that enormous momentum, 2000 companies in five years, it's a lot. We used to have different uh, thresholds in science-based targets, uh, two degree, well below two degree and 1.5. We're only now looking at 1.5. We no longer validate targets above 1.5 and the Global Compact has led a massive campaign with all the other partners of the science-based target around that uh, when the IPCC report uh, was launched. So everybody rushed to the 1.5 when this was announced because everybody i think understands that uh, they need to be part of the solution and and there might be some question marks about how that target is going to be achieved in the future uh, but with the right level of investments the will and the political kind of support uh, to enable it it's possible that was lila Carbassi, the head of the science-based targets initiative which she described as the gold standard of targets for net zero in business. I also wanted to see what business has to say about all this. So for the innovation part of our three for day, I met Theodore Swedjimark, 
the head of sustainability at ABB Group. This is an international technology company active in electrification, robotics, automation and more. I wanted to talk to him about the role of innovation. He loves new tech, of course, but he reinforced the point made by many others at COP26 that by using existing innovations, we can already go a long way to cutting emissions. There are today more than 400 million electric motors installed in the world. They are everywhere in buildings, in industry, elevators, HVAC systems, etc. And they consume about 45%, almost half of the total electricity consumption on the planet. If you would upgrade those to existing, so the highest level standard of efficiency, couple them with a variable speed drive, so like a dimmer almost to vary, you know, to, to adjust the speed to the to what is really required, you could easily save up to 25% of that energy consumption. Energy efficiency is not as exciting as you know the high-tech stuff. If all this tech is there, why isn't it happening? Yeah, we are starting to see it happen more and more. We see our customers today, big process industries and other companies, they really come and say, hey, because they have all also also committed to reduce their emissions so to become net carbon, uh, carbon neutral. And they now realize this is a key lever for them to do that. And they, you know, even you can, by reducing the electricity consumption, your operating cost goes down because you have to buy less electricity. And people are really starting to look at it more from that perspective. But things like, you know, carbon prices, etc., and taking that in consideration could, of course, even further help to accelerate uh, accelerate that movement consumption. We're seeing a real problem in countries that have fewer resources, particularly ones that have been hit by extreme weather events. I'm, you know, thinking of the small island nations. Should they rebuild as it was before, or should they build a more decentralized, small grids, lots of solar? Is that technology available and affordable for countries with fewer resources? Um, I think it is, generally speaking, available. Of course, they need the resources to invest in the technology, but also here at COP there are big discussions. If you recall, there is the, I think it's not fully fulfilled yet, or subscribed yet, or fully agreed yet, but it's this $100 billion pledge uh, by the, the rich part of the world to you know, help the, 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 the developing world to trans- for the transition as well. And I think that will come through and that will be more and more. If you look at the amount of capital that is available in the financial sector that is now also seeking a home to invest uh, in in, in green investment, I think the capital is probably there and the technology is there. But you need to, of course, with the changing and every place of the planet is unique. So in some places it gets very cold and some gets very hot and some you have big storms and etc. But you need to find a resilient setup uh, that works then, of course, in, in those individual circumstances. That was Theodore Swedjimark, Head of Sustainability at the global technology company ABB on the role of innovation and energy efficiency in tackling the climate crisis. Now, Lara, there's one more kind of energy we need to talk about today. Which one? Dance energy. Dance energy. Yes, I learned today that there's a Glaswegian nightclub called SWG3. You been there yet? <laughs> no, no okay. but we should. They're hoping to become the first in the world to create a heating system powered by the body heat of dancers. Wow, that's yes. really cool. Now, apparently, the human body emits 100 watts of heat when it's resting and way more when exercising or throwing shapes. And SWG3, they have a body heat project which will capture the heat through the air conditioning, pipe it through to boreholes and store it there, which they can use to cool the audiences down again or store the energy underground for months until it's needed to heat the building. Here's the boss of the nightclub, Andrew Fleming-Brown. 
So we're installing uh, about 17 boreholes around the venue. So there will be a ground source heat supply that comes from those boreholes. Instead of it going into the atmosphere, we pipe it to these boreholes where that heat, that excess heat that comes from the bodies of people dancing in the venue would then charge the batteries, the thermal batteries of the, of the borehole. And th by doing that, it can be stored there for a longer period of time and then can be redistributed as a heating and cooling load. It's certainly a very innovative solution for heating and cooling a venue. And, you know, the technology is existing, but it's, uh, it's the application of the technology, which is really interesting. And uh, it's certainly the first time it's been done in this environment. That was Andrew Fleming Brown talking. He was being interviewed by Energy Live News. Thank you to them for that interview. What do you reckon? I've never could have thought that a sweat box, sweat box could have. Sweat box could be helping to yeah, like. <laughs> save the world. Yeah, it's really, it's crazy. Well, he wasn't quite claiming that, but it's a very interesting idea. And mm. why not, right? Let's head over to SWG3 and see what happens. <laughs> see how much energy we can produce. Probably not much, actually. No. <laughs> we'll drop that first. By the end of it, we'll, we'll be sitting in a corner trying not to fall asleep. <laughs> Now, other news today, The apart from Little Amal, the other star power was brought by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio yep. yeah, so famous, she gets her an acronym, AOC for short. She was over here with the US congressional delegation. You kind of doorstopped her or ran alongside her. Or what happened? <laughs> I was walking into the venue and then I see this group of, of, of very well-dressed people and I'm like, oh, who are they? Then I realized... There were all U.S. Congress people, and I saw her, and she was on corner, and I talked to her, but she was really busy, so I was just I just walked with her for a little bit. Well, we're going to hear in just a second, but it's a little hard to hear what she's saying because she's wearing a mask, she's walking quite fast, so are you, and she's she's whispering a bit as well. One of the large issues that we're dealing in the United States is just the the, the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Many of these women go missing here fossil fuel extraction sites and so there is very much a very intense intersection between uh, violence, gendered violence and fossil fuel industry. Why do you think it's important for women to be involved in this, the climate action? Because the leadership that got us here won't be the leadership that gets us that was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who Lara was speaking to earlier today, and she was talking about Indigenous women going missing near fossil fuel extraction sites. That's what yes. I could make out from that. Yes, that's that's what she said, basically. And she said that that was something that need, needs to be... This data had to be disaggregated in order to be addressed. She also said that women needed to be involved in uh, climate action because the leaders that brought us to this situation... Are not the leaders who are going to get us out of it, right? Correct. Yes, yes. that's what I understood as well. Mm -hmm. So, busy day today. Yeah. More to come tomorrow. Transport day tomorrow. And then after that, cities day. And after that, we're into the final stretch. So, tomorrow is your expertise day. You're the expert in transport, right? Am I? Uh -huh. okay. I've heard. <laughs> To be honest with you, I don't drive. I hate driving. <laughs> My dream is for the autonomous car to turn up so okay. that I don't have to even think about any of that. Mm. It's going to happen. It's, yeah, apparently. it's coming soon. Thank you, Lara. Okay, thank you.